Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 6th, 2011, and my guest is Frank Rose, author and writer for Wired Magazine. His latest book is The Art of Immersion, How the Digital Generation is Remaking Hollywood, Madison Avenue, and the Way We Tell Stories. Frank, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Nice to be here. Our topic today is your book, The Art of Immersion, which I found utterly fascinating, uh, learned a great deal from it, and found it very provocative as an economic storyteller. Your argument is that uh, storytelling is changing, along with advertising, movies, TV, and the web. How? What is the art of immersion? <laughs> right. Well, the idea is essentially uh, the the focus of the book is on how the internet is changing storytelling, and the idea is really that every time a new medium comes along, it takes people twenty or thirty years to figure out what to do with it, to figure out the grammar of that medium. The motion picture camera was invented around um, eighteen ninety. And it was really about 1915 before the grammar of cinema, all of the things that we take for granted now, like uh, cuts and point-of-view shots and uh, um, fades and pans, all of those things were consolidated into uh, you know, the, the first uh, what we would recognize as feature films, uh, Birth of a Nation being the real landmark. It wasn't the first film that uh, had these um, uh, characteristics, but it was the first uh, film to use all of them, and it was the one that people settled on, uh, you know, that, that really made a difference. I think we're, we're not quite there yet with the Internet, but we can see the outlines of what is happening, of what's starting to emerge. And it's very, very different from the uh, mass media that we've been used to for the past 150 years. How so? Essentially, uh, mass media is um, uh, it's, it's broadcasting, uh, whether it's in print or over the air or whatever. It's one to many. And it's just a function of economics. That around 1850, 1860, it became uh, much more economical to um, start uh, newspapers that uh, uh, would reach a large number of people. And this same pattern, uh, you know, obviously um, uh, obtained in, in broadcasting once, once radio and then television came along. And the uh, trade-off was that it was essentially one-way communication. There was very little way for people to, uh, to, to write back. And, uh, of course, you had letters to the editor and so forth, but the, 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 the bandwidth, so to speak, was uh, infinitely smaller. So it was essentially a one-way form of communication. The, the Internet is um, not only two-way, it's, it's multi-way. It enables us to talk to each other, uh, you know, about what we are, uh, what we're seeing, what we're viewing, what we're experiencing. And that puts us all in a very different uh, place. It means that, um, among other things, essentially the boundaries are blurred. All of the boundaries that we took for granted for much of the past hundred years 
the boundaries between uh, advertising and entertainment, for example. Um, the boundaries between um, fiction and nonfiction. Uh, uh, the boundaries between the audience and the author. So uh, as these things blur, we're entering uh, essentially a, a new kind of uh, media world. Yeah, I, I have believed now for a while that advertisers are some of the best storytellers, and that's becoming increasingly obvious. And in fact, I've started to believe that it's almost all storytelling. Um, it's what we as economists do. We do a lot of storytelling, much of it ex post after the fact, uh, justification for various uh, philosophical views rather than real science. That's a common theme on this program. But the one of the things your book does is it makes you realize how pervasive storytelling is now fundamentally human an act it is. Um, we like telling stories. We like listening to stories. And one thing your book made me think about is we like retelling them. And when we retell them, we tell them with our own additions, subtractions. We retell jokes all the time. It's the most primitive form of it. But the audience communication among each other is really one of the things that your book uh, brings out. And the participatory nature, and you give it a marvelous example of, of 19th century participation with the serial novel. Talk about uh, that as a primitive example of how Dickens was influenced in his writing. Yes. Um, I was really fascinated by, by that example as I, as I got deeper and deeper into it. Essentially, uh, you know, Dickens uh, was a um, – as a as a young writer, as a young novelist, was uh, very influenced by the technology of the day, and so were his publishers. And the situation was that in England in the 1830s, uh, you had large numbers of people who had recently migrated to cities. Uh, you, they were uh, increasing numbers of them were literate, uh, far more than had been the case even 50 years before. And um, uh, at the same time, you had fairly rapid advances in uh, transportation with the railroads, uh, which guaranteed a, a distribution system, and uh, printing presses and the manufacture of paper. Uh, and at the same time, this sort of newly uh, literate uh, potential audience uh, did not have a lot of money, so it wasn't very easy for them to, uh, for for most of them to go out and actually buy a book. But they could afford, uh, you know, a shilling for a, uh, a a small portion of a book. And so what happened was that novels like novelists like Dickens uh, published their books in uh, monthly installments, generally, occasionally even uh, in weekly installments. And this meant that it was the the writing of the novel was very much an iterative process. It was ongoing as it was being as the novel was being published, and so this made it possible for readers to you know make their make their feelings known. And Dickens was, uh, I think, perhaps uh, even more than other writers at the time, was very responsive uh, to what his uh, to what his readers said, he didn't always follow their suggestions. Uh, <laughs> no. You know, with with uh, with little Nell in the old curiosity shop, uh, as it became increasingly apparent that she was going to uh, meet an untimely demise, 
there was, you know, sort of a, a great hue and cry. Uh, he was certainly a, a good enough storyteller to know that uh, that uh, her days were numbered. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But um, in other cases, where the you know where the where the narrative was faltering a bit, uh, he paid much more attention. Yeah, it's actually I, I hadn't thought of this until uh, you just mentioned it. The um, in Oliver Twist, the character of Fagin, uh, who's Jewish, is uh, not a very flattering portrait, and Dickens took a lot of heat for that. So in his later book, Our Mutual Friend, which is one of my – it actually is my favorite Dickens. I'm a big Dickens fan. Uh, Our Mutual Friend, which I consider his best book, uh, there's a Jewish hero in it, and I think Dickens was you know, upset that his fans were upset. Um, so he responded. But of course, as you point out, the bandwidth wasn't very big. You couldn't really – you could let – some people could let him know how they felt. What has changed is not just the ability of the audience to influence the story, but as you often point out in your book, the ability of the audience to write the story, not in the way that, that we used to think it would happen, as you point out. Not, not oh, the audience picks the ending, uh, but really right. how the characters evolve in response to the audience's – Sometimes tweeting uh, in the name of, of, of a character is a marvelous example in the book. But let's talk about some of the immersive aspects, which is another part we really haven't touched on, which is not just the ability to, to get into a story, but get into a story in a way today that you couldn't imagine uh, before the technology of the web came along. Why, why don't you talk, for example, about NotSoSerious.com, which I didn't know about, uh, the campaign in advance of the release of The Dark Knight. Yes, uh, this was what's known as an alternate reality game. Uh, this was a particularly large-scale example that took place over a period of, I believe, about 18 months. And uh, essentially, the purpose of it was to, uh, you know, create this this experience that kind of started and and largely played out online, but also in uh, in the real world and uh, uh, and and elsewhere. That would familiarize people with the, uh, you know, the, the, the story and the characters of the Dark Knight, um, in particular with Heath Ledger as the Joker, and uh, would, you know, essentially sort of build um, enthusiasm and uh, interest in the movie in advance of its release. So on one level, it was a marketing campaign. On another level, and this is another example of the blurring that I mentioned earlier, it was a story in itself, or uh, actually a whole series of stories. It was developed by a company called 42 Entertainment, which uh, is based in Pasadena and headed by a woman named Susan Bonds, who is uh, sort of interestingly enough a uh, uh, educated as a, and worked at first as a systems engineer and um, uh, spent quite a bit of time at uh, Walt Disney Imagineering. Before she uh, before she took up this, it's um, uh, it's it's kind of a particularly intriguing example of storytelling because it really uh, makes it possible or encourages the uh, the audience to to sort of discover and tell the story themselves, to tell the story online to each other. Uh, for example, there was a um, one. Uh, one segment of the story where uh, there were a whole series of clues online that led people to 
uh, a series of of bakeries in uh, various countries. I'm, I'm sorry, various cities around the U.S. And when they got to the bakery, uh, the the first person to uh, you know to get to the bakery in each of these cities, when they got there, they were presented with a with a cake, and um, in the uh, on the icing uh, to the cake was written a phone number and the words "call me." And so when they called, the cake started raining, and uh, so so people would uh, you know obviously kind of cut into the cake to see what was going on, and inside the cake they found a, uh, a you know a plastic a uh, sealed plastic pouch with a uh, cell phone and a series of instructions. And this led to, uh, you know, to, to a whole new series of, uh, of events that unfolded and eventually led people to a, uh, uh, a series of screenings at cities around the country of the first, um, I think it was the first seven minutes of the film uh, in which the, um, the Heath Ledger character is introduced. That was a rather, uh, rather remarkable. I actually... You mentioned at the beginning of the book, and then I think toward the end. I think when you went into the bakery, you had to ask for a, you had to ask for a package for Robin Banks, uh, which is kind of a pun. It, I missed it the first time, but uh, since <laughs> yes. that's how the movie opens with a bank robbery, right? So that, right. that's a cheap joke for such a clever, uh, extraordinarily complex set of clues. One of the things that happens in these stories that you chronicle is the the, the crowdsourcing, the wisdom of crowds, the emergent. Smartness of of the uh, of the ecosystem of these fans. Any one of them, of course, has trouble solving these. But as a group, they solve them with lightning speed. Sometimes, to the surprise of the designers, I gave one example where they expected some puzzle to last for either weeks or months, and they they solved it in the first day, and they're off and running, and then all of a sudden, it's out of control. Um, in this case, do we have any idea how many people were involved in exploring that game that was created in advance of the Dark Knight? Because the uh, numbers are extraordinary. Sure. Uh, ultimately, I, I it, was a, it was about 11 million people yeah, around the is, world. Just stunning. Um, now, another example you talk about, and, and again, that's, that's one level of immersion, right? Before the movie comes out, you're into uh, Christopher Nolan or you're into the Batman series or you just like puzzles or games, and so you start playing along with this. But one of the examples that you talked about, particularly interesting, uh, was the TV series Lost. So I'm one of the only people in the world who hasn't seen all of them, all the episodes. I, I saw a few of them when it when it first came out. Uh, but a, a, a lot of people, not most, but a lot of people got immersed in Lost. So give us some examples of that immersion and the uh, products that got created along the way. Sure. Well, the thing about Lost was it, it was really a different kind of television show, and uh, what what made it different was not the you know the, the the sort of gimmicks like the smoke monster and the polar bear and uh, you know all of these things. Those were just kind of uh, icing. Um, what really made it different was that it wasn't explained. The uh, in in the entire history of television um, until quite recently, just the last few years, the whole idea behind the show has been to make it really simple, to make it uh, completely understandable so that no one ever gets confused. Yeah, dumb it down for a mass audience. You know, PBS, that's sophisticated. That's where you can watch Shakespeare. You'd have to work a little bit at it. But sitcoms and other things are just – they're supposed to be easy. Right, right, exactly. 
And um, Loss took exactly the opposite tack. And the result was that, uh, uh, I mean, it might not have worked 10 years ago, uh, you know, quite frankly. But now with everybody online, uh, <laughs> we live in an, in an entirely different world. So the result was that people got increasingly intrigued uh, by the uh, essentially puzzle-like nature of the show. And uh, they tended to go online to find out things about it. And uh, the, the show developed a sort of fanatical following in part because it, uh, you know, precisely because it was so difficult to figure out. There was a great example that I came across of a guy in Anchorage, Alaska, who watched the uh, entire first season on DVD uh, with his girlfriend um, in the couple of nights leading up to the uh, opening episode of season two. And then he watched the opening episode of season two and something completely unexpected happened. And he thought, you know, what is going on here? So he did what he, you know, what comes naturally at this point, which is to go online and try to find out some information about it. But there wasn't really much information to be found, so he did the other thing that's becoming increasingly natural, which is he uh, started his own wiki. Um, this became uh, Lostpedia. It was essentially a Wikipedia about Lost, and uh, it now has tens of thousands of entries. It's in about 23 different languages ar uh, you know, around the world. And uh, uh, it's become such a phenomenon that occasionally the uh, people who were producing the show uh, would themselves consult it when their, you know, when their resident uh, 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 continuity guru was uh, was hmm. not available. And you talk about again a sort of a, a modern version of the of the Dickens story when when they created a couple characters that people didn't like they killed they killed them off. Pretty quickly, right? Uh, again, a little bit of of audience feedback affecting the story, but the other part of that, of course, is the is the that Lostpedia and videos that people create and make. They start using the characters in ways that probably often violate copyright laws. You talk in the book, but often the creators say, "This is good. Let it run." Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the, the more enlightened attitude uh, toward it. Because the truth is that people really want to inhabit stories, uh, stories that they love. Uh, if if they if it's a story that you really care about, you, you want to you know get into it as deeply as possible. And for many people, that means, as you mentioned earlier, retelling the story yourself. And so, uh, for years, decades, in fact, you had a, a sort of underground uh, fan fiction community that particularly flourished around. Uh, certain science fiction movies and TV series, um, Star Trek and Star Wars, I guess, being the ultimate uh, examples, but there were certainly many others. And uh, with the with the coming of the internet, uh, all of these things surfaced because uh, you know what what had been published in uh, you know very small scale fanzines uh, suddenly became available <coughs> online for anybody to see. And this caused a fair amount of panic, uh, certainly in Hollywood and, uh, and, and and as well as in the publishing community and elsewhere. Um, but I think the the really interesting example is what's happened in Japan, uh, where 
uh, manga series, uh, you know, the comic series developed uh, the same kind of following and the same kind of, um, of, of intense involvement in the form of fan fiction. And the publishers eventually learned to just sort of look the other way and let it happen because they realized that it's not as if these, um, uh, you know, it's not as if the fan fiction is taking something away from the existing uh, uh, series. It's only increasing interest in it. Uh, it it's, it's hardly plagiarism. Um, it, it may be technically a violation of, of, uh, of copyright law, um, but, uh, it, you know, frankly, it's to the benefit of all concerned. Uh, so um, I think companies in the U.S. and in Europe are just beginning to to reach this conclusion. A, uh, a particularly interesting example was what happened to Warner Brothers when it started to uh, take on uh, teenage and preteen fans of the of the Harry Potter series yeah, in advance of the release of the first movie. And this was, uh, you know, they, they started sending cease and desist letters to 12 and 13 year olds who had, uh, set up websites that, you know, used names like harrypotter.com. And, uh, you know, fan sites, of course. And so these kids got these letters and a lot of them were, uh, you know, pretty freaked out about it. And so were their parents. And, you know, where, where once it might have been, uh, uh, you know, they wouldn't have had a voice. That's not the case anymore. It developed into a, a huge uh, public relations disaster for Warner Brothers, and they finally had to back off on it. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> it's, um, it's an interesting question about whether, you know, the vision of an author often might be a little different than the vision of a, of a conglomerate, um, right? You know, who owns, who owns Hamlet? Well, after a while, we all do, right. but, but maybe for some period of time, the author ought to be able to protect Hamlet from, uh, I don't know, becoming a slacker surfer dude. Uh, but it's a, it's a fascinating question, and in a way, it's kind of an irrelevant question because uh, the Internet's making it so hard to enforce those cease and desist orders even if, even if you wanted to. Uh, but as you point out, a lot of increasingly people don't want to. Uh, I'm going to go back to loss for just one second. Uh, one of the remarkable things about it is the, is the size of it. You mentioned there's a lot of articles, but I think you said the the article on Jack Shepard's over 100 pages or roughly 100 pages. It's not just that, oh, there's lots of information about it. There's scientific studies of airplane crashes. There's <laughs> yeah. uh, expansive imaginings about what things might stand for that aren't clear. Um, you even mentioned there's an economics page. I went and looked at it. Uh, wasn't very excited by it. I, I blogged on it at my blog, Cafe Hayek. I'll put a link up to that because I encourage people to maybe give us some alternative visions of the economics of the show than the one that's up there. <laughs> but that's just one example. And one thing that was that struck me that I don't think you talk about uh, as an economist that struck me is the amount of time. Uh, it's one thing to say, you know, when Star Wars came out, a lot of people got into it, and that that spawned novels based on Star Wars. You know, action figures that kids played with, um, sequels, obviously, all kinds of things that that used time. But and people went to comp, to conventions to in costumes and all that. But but the level of hobbydom or whatever you want to call it, the use of leisure to immerse yourself in these stories is just it's an extraordinary statement about. 
our humanity, our standard of living, the amount of time that people devote to these beloved characters and stories, which are not real, which doesn't matter really at all, right. uh, is one of the fascinating things about this whole phenomenon. Uh, it, it, it couldn't have happened in 1500, not because of the technology. Obviously, they're related, <laughs> but you'd starve to death. The fact that people can devote hundreds and hundreds of hours personally and that millions can do this says something about modern life that is deep and profound. No, it's it's quite true, I think. Um, Clay Shirky, who I believe you've um, interviewed in the yes. past, uh, has the theory that um, – that, that television arrived just in time to uh, soak up the uh, um, excess leisure time that was produced by uh, the invention of vacuum cleaners yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, and dishwashers and other labor-saving devices. And I think uh, um, this is essentially the, the uh, next iteration of that, uh, kind of the, the next step, so to speak. Um, and the difference is that television was, uh, well, it encouraged passivity, obviously, uh, you know, that gave rise to the whole phrase, uh, 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 couch potato. And, uh, this is something entirely different. I mean, there obviously, uh, still shows that people like to, uh, just sort of veg out and watch, but, uh, there are many other shows that uh, large numbers of people like to become increasingly involved in, and, and you know, as well as books, movies, uh, and so forth. Uh, really, any a story in any kind of in any form. And um, what's what's really happening here, I think, is that we're putting our our excess time, our excess leisure time, to um, you know, to to, to use. Uh, could we, you know, be using that time to solve all the world's problems? Well, you know, maybe, but, um, uh, frankly, football games and, and the like exist for the same, uh, for the yes. same purposes. Yes, they do. Uh, you know, just to soak up our attention, to, to provide a diversion. To stimulate, to yeah. amuse, to divert. It, it's, but exactly. it's different, but, but what, what, look, what your book made me think a lot about isn't the, the sort of divert and, you know, the passing of time in a pleasant way, which is what um, – that's the least attractive way to describe it, mm-hmm. a football game. right? A football game is actually, for a serious fan, something much different than a couch potato experience. It's immersive in a, in a different way. You, you, you pour over the statistics. You go over the history of your team's success and failures. You agonize over it. You talk to your buddies, your family. right? It, it is immersive in a in – a, in, before the net, in a very in a non technological way, but increasingly technological. Now, fantasy footballs change that. But what I found provocative is that it's very easy to dismiss football or uh, Star Wars or Lost as quote oh that's just entertainment. But it has real effects on us as human beings, and not not in a bad way, but in a there's an emotional experience that happens there. Some of it can be destructive, of course. You're rooting for your team to rip the head off of another team's player. That's not so attractive. There's a bloodlust there that you're vicariously uh, appealing to there. But but in fiction, which is what storytelling is about, you're experiencing things vicariously that are healthy. They're imaginative. They're part of the human experience that you can't touch directly and you're experiencing them indirectly. You're exploring the universe. You're doing things that are no longer possible or never were possible for you as an individual. So I found – and you talk about some of the neuroscience of that. 
it just it's a um, it's a remarkable thing. Yes, I certainly think so, and I certainly agree with you about football or other sports. By the way, I, I'm not myself a huge sports fan, but that's neither here nor there. What's What's fascinating about sports is that there's precisely the same mechanism at work as as there is in uh, fictional stories that are presented in a way that that you can become immersed in them, which is that uh, uh, with with football. Uh, or with any sort of ball game, uh, you are essentially able to tell your own story. It presents you with this sort of, uh, you know, tableau with uh, an uh, almost infinite number of, uh, of variables, uh, you know, in the players, the yeah. points, the, the stats, and so forth. And uh, out of that, you pick your own story. You pick uh, the details and create your own story. Yeah, that, and that's, in a sense, not unlike what happens with fan fiction. Um, uh, you know, the the, um, the the novel or the TV series or whatever it is that you become, you know, more or less obsessed with, uh, really becomes a something that uh, that that you use to um, to generate stories of your own. It's the same basic mechanism at work. And there's a couple of um, very interesting uh, factors here. I mean, you mentioned neuroscience, and I, I think, I mean, that's something I became increasingly fascinated by as I worked on the book, because uh, we're in a time right now when, for the very first time, it's possible to, to get, a, a, you know, the first sort of dim outlines of how the brain works. And, uh, you know, we certainly don't know it all yet by any means, and there are many um, aspects of it that are, that are controversial and many more aspects of it that are uh, that are still unknown, but um, it becomes very apparent, um, among other things, that the whole um, idea of storytelling has something to do with the um, uh, with with the phenomenon of sharing. You know, we we essentially want to share information. We want to um, uh, for for any number of reasons. Um, you know, in a sort of advanced um, technological society, we want to share information for pecuniary reasons. If we're, you know, professionals, we like to, you know, write newspaper articles or movie scripts or whatever. But um, there's a much deeper mechanism, I think, at work here. And uh, what has happened is that a, a series of um, a series of experiments that really began by uh, accident about um, 20 odd years ago in a laboratory in Parma in Italy uh, where they were studying um, uh, the brain functions of, uh, of macaque monkeys. Um, the, these experiments have, um, have given rise to the idea that there are cells in the brain that are involved in rehearsing different sorts of actions. And um, the way they work is that if we see something that happens to somebody else, whether it's um, you know somebody else on the street or somebody else on TV, uh, it's almost as if it happens to us. And this makes um, for a very uh, you know a, a, a very close you know and personal uh, relationship with the people that uh, we see around us, even if we don't know them. 
And, uh, it, you know, this is considered uh, basically to be the, uh, the basis of empathy, but it's also uh, the, the basis of the kind of, um, the kind of sharing that, uh, is, that storytelling is essentially all about. Yeah, I, you know, I've <clears throat> remarked on the program before a, a phenomenon that in a way makes those experiments unnecessary. The fact that we cry when a fictional character dies in a book whether it's Nell or a modern version right. or a character in a movie, um, we, we can sob. And you know, the standard argument, I think, is that, well, we fool ourselves. You know, we step back and we, we, uh, we pretend that it's real, but it doesn't really matter. Um, something clearly biological is going on there. It's not like, oh, let me, let me pretend that this is uh, unreal so I can have a good cry. I, I can't really help myself if the story is well told. Right. And so that's really what's going on. Um, I want to comment on your football uh, example because it, it, for me, pulls together a lot of things. I am a sports fan. And um, you know, one aspect of sports is that uh, th- there's a story every time, but we don't know the script, so we don't know who's going to win. So there's a tremendous – it's like every week – it's like watching a movie you've never seen before. Sure. There's that part of it. There's the rush of of uh, the biochemical rush when when your team wins or falters. The the, the depression of, of of chemicals. And it, the p- point you made that I think really resonates with me, and I'm going to tie it into economics, is the ability to tell the story ourselves. So I'm a Red Sox fan. The Red Sox collapsed this year, which they've done before. That was often devastating to me in the past, but they've won a few World Series recently, so it's not so bad. I didn't like it. It made me – it was, it was uh, a bad thing for me. But, but what I find interesting is – and I never thought about it so, so clearly – is we all tell our story of why – Red Sox fans all tell a story about why we lost. Oh, it was the manager's fault. See, here's what happened. Or <laughs> it was the GM. He didn't have you – know, he didn't give the staff. He didn't uh, – my story is the pitching was – the starting pitching collapsed. That put pressure on the – on the uh, the middle relief, and then they collapsed, and and I'll prove it. I'll, let me tell my story even better. I'll go get data to show you that the Red Sox led the major leagues in runs scored, and see that's part of my story because that shows you it was the pitching, and therefore, et cetera. So we do that in sports all the time, but we also, of course, do it in economics and politics. So if you're on the left, you have one story to tell about why the economy is struggling. For on the right, you tell a different story, and some stories are more entertaining. It's not clear that the stories are more accurate. It's very hard in economics to pin those things down, and so a lot of what we're doing is unfortunately fake science rather than than, than the real thing. Um, let me ask you a few different questions that came up in my mind. I don't think you talked about in the book. Uh, one of the differences uh, in immersion is, uh, is gender. Uh, men – I suspect, are much more likely to be immersed in these examples. And you give a lot of examples in the book of how video games interact with, with movies and stories. And um, Men are much more likely, I suspect, to be in these immersive examples than women. Is, that, is my suspicion correct? I'm not entirely sure. I don't really have the, have the data on that, I'm afraid. I, I'm, you know, I... Uh, certainly, it would appear that men are uh, men tend to be immersed in uh, more immersed in some kind of stories than than women do. I mean, football would be an you know an obvious example. Grand Theft Auto, too, I assume. Yeah, which you sure, talk about. Sure, exactly. I assume that's mostly men. Right, but I think that uh, uh, I, I don't. 
I'm not at all sure that the idea of immersion itself is a, is gender specific. I think it's more a matter of what uh, what kind of story uh, it attaches to. True. Um, you know, I think that um, uh, you know, obviously there are movies that ap- appeal more to women or TV shows that appear more to women than to men, um, and um, I suspect that in Cases like that, that, uh, you know, women are at least as capable of, 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 uh, of being immersed, so to speak. I mean, you know, one of the examples that I use in the, in the book of, uh, of, of kind of fan involved storytelling is, um, uh, with the show Mad Men, which is, um, uh, you know, obviously it's been a hugely popular show among, uh, especially among, you know, people in, uh, in New York and other cities who have some kind of uh, involvement or knowledge of the um, ad business. Sure. Um, and uh, uh, there's a whole series of people who started uh, uh, tweeting as uh, characters, you know, in, in character uh, for, um, you know, Betty or Don Draper or, uh, you know, various other characters in the show. And... Uh, overwhelmingly, these people were, uh, you know, people who had experience in the ad business. But also, uh, interestingly, I think most of them were women. Um, I mean, it's obviously an anecdotal example. I, it, it, you know, I, I, I can't, um, I'm not sure how much I can extrapolate from that. But it certainly suggests that, um, you know, women are as capable as men of being, uh, uh, of, of wasting of large to... amounts of their time doing something in an alternative universe. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I, don't, exactly. I, don't, I don't dispute that. I, I think the, there's an aspect of this immersive uh, phenomenon, though, that, that you touch on from time to time quite a bit in the book, which is the power of reward, competition, scorekeeping, and that's what video games exploit, obviously. Video games that don't have winning, that don't have points, that don't have goals that you achieve – don't do very well, and for whatever reason, and I'm interviewing Roy Baumeister in a in a few weeks uh, on the topic of, of male female differences of this kind. But for whatever mm-hmm. reason, uh, men seem to find those kind of experiences uh, more exhilarating on average. Obviously, there's women who do and men who don't. But mm-hmm. um, another phenomenon in the book I wanted to ask you about, which I found fascinating, and I, we're we're doing this interview on October sixth which is the day after the passing of Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs was a um, well-known as a college dropout. And uh, at the end, I want to come back. I'm going to ask you about Steve Jobs. But right now, the thing I want to focus on is that he didn't finish college. He went to read for a while, dr- dropped out, got into typography, hung out there for a while, took some things he found interesting and made his own way. There are a lot of portraits in your book of people who have done these exhilaratingly creative uh, storytelling examples, videos, etc. I was struck by how many of them did not take the standard route to financial well-being in the U.S., which is to graduate from college and get a good job. A lot of them were kind of on the fringes of mainstream economic activity and suddenly vaulted not just to success – but to wild success. Did, did you notice that when you were doing those interviews? I can't say that I, that I thought about that consciously, but you're absolutely right. Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty well known, for example, that uh, especially in the tech world, uh, there are a lot of uh, 
uh, college dropout billionaires. Um, you know, Steve Jobs is hardly unique. I'm sorry? They're a dime a dozen, yeah. But, but, <laughs> right, exactly. But it, these aren't the standard startup people you hear about. Uh, Sergey Brin, sure. he, he went at least – he finished college. He dropped out of grad school. But but a lot of these people were, were – one of them you said was just was driving a cart on the lot somewhere at 25 living at home and – Suddenly, he's running something, and you know I can't remember the details, but it's there's more than one. <laughs> yeah, no, ab- absolutely, and um, I mean I think one really good example is Will Wright, uh, the, um, the the video game designer who is responsible for uh, first SimCity and then later The Sims, uh, which is one of the most um, successful video games in in history. And, uh, I mean, one of the two or three most successful video games in history. It's just been, uh, um, you know, it's made him and Electronic Arts a great deal of money. And um, uh, it's also um, uh, kind of changed the way a lot of people think about video games. Interestingly, by the way, um, it's one example of a, of a game that, uh, you know, while it, uh, it, it certainly has a structure that uh, many games has, it's not really focused on points or competition. Um, what it is focused on is, is, um, is, is model building. You're yeah. essentially, um, as the name implies, you're creating a simulation. And, um, and that's something that, uh, turns out to be really basic to what we're talking about, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's a football game, um, you know, uh, we, we, we take our experience, we abstract it, and we tell stories about it, uh, as fans, um, or whether you're playing this game and that gives rise to, uh, to its own kind of stories. Because you're you're essentially talking about what what happens to you, and when people uh, essentially become so interested in uh, a, a fictional story that they um, you know they they want to make it their own, that's kind of what happens too. I mean, there was this fascinating um, exchange that I stumbled across between. Um, uh, Henry James and Robert Louis Stevenson in, uh, I think it was 1883, uh, where Henry James in a fairly well-known essay, um, described, um, uh, fiction as, um, uh, the, the, um, uh, sort of an impression of life. And, you know, that seems to be, uh, hard to argue with, but actually <laughs> Stevenson argued with it. And what he said was that, um, to quote, uh, life is monstrous, infinite, illogical, abrupt, and poignant. A work of art in comparison is neat, finite, self-contained, rational, flowing, and emasculate. In other words, um, art is essentially an abstraction. Um, it's it's you know it's a form of of model building. Now again, I can't help but think about economics, where we have all this data and we have the complexity of a modern economy, which is literally mind-boggling, and we have to make sense of it because we want to talk about it and fix it when we think it's not going well. And so we build a model that simplifies by an enormous amount, and that is both comforting and can be dangerous. (laughs) Uh, But it it is – I think for for political junkies and economics junkies, it's a form of of entertainment in the same way that storytelling is. It's comforting. It it leads to confirmation bias of you know one's own worldview, 
And I think in economics, we have to face the fact that that's a lot of what we do um, and that's a lot of what people are consuming that we provide. And it's kind of – it's a little bit scary. Um, <laughs> right. Now, one of the things that struck me – and you, you talk about this in the, in the very beginning of, of the uh, – of our conversation, and you said we're sort of at, we're at the cusp, not quite at the cusp. We're not at the at the landmark event yet. Um, it's extraordinary as all the examples that you give in the book, and as a as a fifty seven year old who's not immersed in pop culture, a lot of them were uh, I didn't know about. Um, I didn't know about Lostpedia. I didn't know about NotSoSerious.com and the Dark Knight. Uh, run up, so those are all. They're really utterly fascinating and really, really interesting. But the flip side is they're really kind of pitiful. Um, in in that I read your book on my iPad using the Kindle app, which was you know very pleasant. I took a lot of notes and highlights, and and I it was really uh, it was a nice experience. It's fun to put it under my arm and, and carry it around mm-hmm. with the other things that are on there. But I was struck, for example, when you talked about the Happiness Factory ad that Coca-Cola ran, which an ad I remember vividly and, and loved and found it just, just a beautiful um, thing and just fun to watch. And those of you out there, we'll put a link up to it. You can Google it, and, and if you want, you'll find it. It's easy to find. But I was struck that I had to get out of my Kindle app and go wander around on, on my YouTube app, that, that it wasn't a very seamless experience, that it should have been embedded in the text – I should have been able to touch it, and it would have popped up and played. With Lostpedia, should have been on there, etc. Uh, as far as we've come, we have so much farther to go. So much of what's on the web is just print put up on the web. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's right. it, you know, in, again, in academic life, you know, the gold standard's always been uh, an interactive textbook, and yet most textbooks online. Uh, or just the textbook put on in a PDF. I mean, it's a little more interactive, maybe. But um, we've got so much more to go. So, one react to that, and then I'd like you to speculate on where you think where could it go? What directions might it be heading? Sure. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, in a um, uh, in a perfect world, uh, the book would have uh, had many of the uh, the e book version of this would have had many of these things uh, embedded in it. Uh, and frankly, it was um, just a matter of of uh, economics and time, which yeah. uh, of course are kind of the same thing. You could have built an app for yes. your book that did that in some fashion. Take a long time, and it's expensive. Right, right, exactly. And you know, we we decided that the. Um, uh, the best thing to do would be to get the book out there as quickly yep. as possible, since it's uh, something that uh, you know is kind of very much uh, uh, based on what's happening in popular culture at the moment. Um, you know, these things have kind of a half-life. Right. Um, uh, and it's not so bad to go on my YouTube app. It's not like, yeah, sure. although that dis- that distraction and and challenge, trivial as it is. Will in a year or five be unacceptable? <laughs> right, right. No, I, I, I totally agree, and I think that um, uh, you know we're we're fairly rapidly entering a period where um, you know a book like this is going to look um, you know very old fashioned, and at some point, I'm sure that um, you know we'll we'll uh, be able to update it to uh, you know to accommodate all of those things. Um, but uh, you know you're absolutely right. I mean that's a that's a measure of where we stand right now, and uh, certainly it would be 
less intrusive to um, you know to have those things built in than it would be to you know sort of force you to uh, to, to to go online on your laptop or whatever and uh, and explore them. But the same experience uh, happens um, essentially with um, television right now. I mean, there are more and more studies that show that uh, increasing numbers of people, especially young people who are watching TV, you know, do so with a uh, with a laptop or some other device um, uh, immediately uh, next to them um, that they're referring to constantly. Um, you know, whether they're chatting with friends uh, who are watching the same show, whether Frank. they're looking things up. Frank, um, it's not just TV. It's it's life. Yeah, the conversations right. <laughs> are like this. You're talking to someone. They're checking their their email while they're talking while you're talking to them. And it's now become almost. It's a little bit embarrassing for some people, but we're multitasking and connected. It's not just oh, you can always reach somebody on their cell phone. You can reach them on their cell phone while they're talking to you, <laughs> or text them while they're talking to you, and they look down. Right, it, it's right. everything. It's true. Anyway, I interrupted you. Sorry. You're, you're, t- talk about where you think it might go. Well, I think that um, ultimately where it's going to go is some kind of fusion of story and game, which has uh, not not really been accomplished yet. Um, I think that that's uh, that that is, however, what's implied in this kind of uh, immersive participatory uh, form of storytelling. Um, the problem is, you know, it really comes down to a problem of, of authorship. I mean, we, we touched on this earlier, but uh, the question is, whose story is it? And, and this was actually reflected per, uh, perfectly in an exchange I had with the, um, with the people who, who ran Lost, uh, uh, Damon Lindelof and Carlton Hughes, um, where, you know, they said that people, uh, fans who talked to them at fan conventions and the like, had uh, basically two um, opposite um, reactions. One was they wanted to be sure that uh, the producers knew where the story was going. Uh, And at the same time, they wanted to have some voice in where the story was going themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly contradictory. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, there are ways that you can accommodate it. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I think Dickens, um, showed how you could do that. But, uh, um, it's, if there weren't a strong, uh, narrative and if there weren't a, a strong author there in the first place, uh, you know, people wouldn't be attracted to it. Yeah. Uh, people, it's a difference between, you know, Lost, say, and Second Life, uh, you know, which is a sort of online experience that has kind of fizzled out, uh, because, there are no rules. You can kind of more or less do anything you want, and and so what? Um, and uh, you know, games. The advantage that games have over uh, you know uh, conventional narratives is that uh, you can be the hero. You know, whatever yeah. is happening, it happens to you. Um, but uh, there are a lot of technical limitations in game consoles and. Uh, uh, and and all the other devices that uh, that are involved, and um, uh, those are uh, you know those kind of those tend to um, to make it feel uh, you know not at all realistic. And I, I think it's very interesting though that the 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 game that's come closest to um, uh, to being a, a real story is. 
uh, one that recently came out from uh, from Rockstar, uh, which is the company behind Grand Theft Auto. This new game is called L.A. Noir, and um, it's essentially a detective story that is uh, set in Los Angeles in the uh, in the mid 1940s. And it's kind of fascinating that that uh, a detective story would make such a great narrative video game. Because, of course, detective stories are inherently participatory in the first place. You know, whether it's um, Sherlock Holmes or Miss Marple, you're always kind of looking over right. the detective's shoulder, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. And, um, you've got uh, the data. In theory, you have the same data. That You've got the clues. You've got, yeah. Right. And typically what happens in a detective story is uh, uh, some bit of data surfaces that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that's, you didn't have access to. But you can imagine those, those data, right? That's, that's the, again, a, sure. you really get into it. You start to say, well, what could I be missing that I'd need to, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so um, uh, in any case, I, I think where it's going is uh, some, some um, form that hasn't really been invented yet. That uh, you know very convincingly uh, combines the participatory uh, aspect of games with the uh, narrative uh, absorption of storytelling. Yeah, when you were talking about that contra- seeming contradiction between you want the producers of the show to know where it's going, but you also want to have a say in it, uh, it it's no fun to think that they're playing around with you, that they're leaving around clues that that don't mean anything. Sure, you, you mm-hmm. want there to be an integrity to the story. Uh, that is, and it's got to be that part to some degree has to be scripted. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of this uh, quote I've always loved of, of Faulkner's, where he says, uh, and I think about this when I write. He says, um, "Yeah, I just follow my characters around and write down what they say." <laughs> and, right. and, and in a way, that is that's one style of writing and writing fiction. What I and I, when you write fiction, you do think about your characters and you, you do think about what they do in certain situations. And and I think but what that captures that's related to, I think, the law story is the integrity. There has to be some intellectual, artistic vision that's that has integrity, uh, and then you want to play with it. You want to imagine where it might be going. You want to try to anticipate the ending and so on, and it's uh, – it's um, that's what makes it, I think, exciting as as the reader, right. or the, yeah, or the audience. You know, it's funny you mentioned Second Life. We had uh, Edward Castronova, an academic who studies virtual alternative reality, massive multiplayer games, on the show a long time ago. And at that time, Second Life was just exploding, and it seemed to be that 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 it would be uh, a big success, and it was a big success for a while. But I love the way you described it, which was, well, you can do whatever you want. Well, that's a little too much like life in America in, in 2011, at least to some extent. Uh, in 1500, again, that that had been a remarkably exciting thing. Uh, if you were going to be, if you knew your dad was a blacksmith and you were going to be a blacksmith, to imagine and be able to inhabit a world where you were something else, um, that, that'd be a lot more exciting. Yeah. Um, Let's um, let's close and, and let's talk a little bit about Steve Jobs. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, on his passing. Well, um, yeah, because he's part of this story in in lots of ways, right? On the edges and in the middle, sometimes. And- uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, before uh, years before I wrote this book, um, I wrote a book uh, called West of Eden. Which is about uh, the the conflict uh, between uh, Jobs and John Scully, who uh, 
uh, Steve brought in to be the um, CEO of Apple in the early 80s and uh, who, who uh, two or three years later ended up firing him. And um, uh, uh, Scully fired Jobs, of course. And um, uh, I thought about this quite a bit a couple of years ago when I, uh, when I um, republished the book and, uh, you know, therefore wanted to, you know, I needed to think about what had happened, what was the difference between then and now? Because when when Jobs was forced out of Apple in 1985, uh, you know everybody celebrated the um, you know the, the the press, the tech world, um, you know the, the the business press, of course, in particular. Um, everybody, yeah, the grown-ups were going to be in charge now. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and uh, you know it meant that Apple was going to be safe, and it would be uh, you know it could be like Hewlett Packard. Well, yeah. you know nobody wants to be like Hewlett, <laughs> Hewlett Packard these days, do they? But, um, Especially not if you're in the entertainment world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, anyway, um, but we, uh, I mean, what was uh, so intriguing to me is that um, I think in the 1980s we weren't uh, we weren't ready for uh, computers, and we certainly weren't ready for Steve. Uh, you know, people were kind of were obviously fascinated by computers, but most of us were uh, also pretty scared of them. And uh, it, you know, in the way that many of us are are fearful of one aspect or another of the internet at this point, uh, but we certainly made our peace with computers. And in fact, Steve has uh, you know very much defined the world that we live in. And he started to do that way back in the '80s when he introduced the Macintosh, which. Contained the seeds of, of uh, you know, uh, desktop publishing, uh, you know, which eventually led to blogging and and you know all forms of social media. You know, all of these things can you know really be traced back to um, stuff that he was involved in as far back as the 80s, and then in the uh, late 90s and in, in the current decade, um, you know, really uh, brought to fruition with uh, a whole series of remarkable products, the iPod, the, the um, iPhone, the iPad, and so forth. And, um, but we, we really do live in Steve's world, and uh, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a world that he um, created for us without uh, benefit of focus groups. He didn't ask us what we wanted um, uh, because he understood quite correctly that nobody knows what they want when it hasn't been invented yet. Yeah. And, um, uh, he, uh, you know, I think learned from his, uh, um, uh, you know, s- some of the mistakes that he made uh, in the past. Um, but he certainly didn't become a different person. Uh, he b- remained uh, as fierce and um, um, as 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 intense as he always had been. And that inspired um, a number of things, but in particular, a kind of loyalty um, among the people who worked for him. Uh, you know, they they wanted to. People really wanted to, uh, to to please them, and it wasn't just out of fear that he would, um, you know, eviscerate them if they failed, because um, <laughs> you know, because he might. Um, but they wanted to. Uh, he inspired them. He, yeah. he always inspired people and inspired the people he worked for. And ultimately, he did that with all of us. And I think that's the real secret of the marketing campaign, you know, the in- incredible marketing success that 
that um, you, you know Apple has had. Um, yes, they've had good ads and, and great slogans and all of that, and that's a, a clear part of it. But somehow what they really managed to do was take that sense of inspiration and, um, uh, uh, you know, challenging people to, to do something and, um, and spread it to the whole populace and, you know, not just the people who are working for you. I'm glad you mentioned the people who work for them because, I, you know, I was watching uh, some news clip this morning about uh, – they talked about all the products he created. And as much as I respect the man, he, he didn't create many of them directly. He, he had an extraordinary team. Sure. But that's not enough. It's easy to hire the smartest people. The hard part's getting them to work together, unified by a vision that he did <clears throat> clearly impose. Not a literal vision always, but a, certainly a set of uh, principles of taste, aesthetics, usability, mm-hmm. etc. That were that were rather um, that were rather extraordinary. My um, my obit on him was uh, from Kipling. He filled the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run and um yeah. his intensity of of creativity not just uh and his faith in himself which of course sometimes was probably just lucky uh that, that people liked what he created it, it, he didn't force it on us he couldn't force it on us uh it was really his his will mm-hmm. his indomitable will in the face of of um, received wisdom is really what I think is so extraordinary about him. I remember when the iPad came out and people laughed at it. This is the iPad. He's already had the string of incredible successes. When it came <laughs> right. out, people said, it's just a small computer and it doesn't have a real keyboard and it's not going to – it's expensive and, quote, nobody needs it and only people are going to buy it are going to be these these geeky fans of Apple. And, um, you know, it's um, it's everyone – not everyone, but a lot of people love that love that toy. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I sure enjoyed reading your book on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, thank you. My guest today has been Frank Rose. Frank, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. Really enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.